0: Welcome to the climate finance podcast. My name is Jonas and this podcast aims to mainstream climate finance by interviewing high level investors, researchers, and policymakers who have made significant contributions to the climate finance space. Please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice. Enjoy the episode. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Climate Finance Podcast. Today's guest is Marilyn Waite. Marilyn is the Managing Director of the Climate Finance Fund and a venture partner at Era Venture Capital. She is also the author of Sustainability at Work, Careers That Make a Difference. So welcome, Marilyn. How's it going in Paris?
1: Uh, Hi, Jonas. Thanks for having me. Things are well.
0: Thank you for being on the show. I've been looking forward to this episode for quite some time. Whilst researching for this interview, I was impressed by your multidisciplinary and international background. You are a citizen of three countries, Jamaica, US and France. You speak multiple languages, including Spanish, Mandarin and French, and you transition from a predominantly engineering role to finance. Can you please give us an overview of how your career progressed and evolved over time?
1: Sure. So my my first job was actually in Madagascar. I graduated with a degree in civil and environmental engineering. And I went to Madagascar to support sustainable water resources. And it was there that I really bumped into a lot of energy challenges in a real way. I went for a few months without reliable electricity. And I saw the impact that had on local businesses. So cyber cafes, printing businesses, even refrigeration dependent companies. And so I shifted my focus from there to clean energy. And after further studies, I joined the nuclear and renewable energy industry in France. And and that's where at some point I was working in corporate research and development. And there I learned a lot of our troubles were less on the Engineering or project management side, or even invention side, and more on the finance and investment side. And so I shifted from more project management, innovation, engineering to more finance and investment. And I left France, went to China to do a bunch of things, and eventually made my way back to the United States to focus on this intersection between venture capital and. The real economy around clean energy. And it was there that I focused on sustainable transportation and transportation of goods and services, so freight, and how do we reduce energy consumption within that and improve efficiency. And so as the lead for a seed capital firm, I had focused on investing in startups that were improving energy efficiency and goods movement. And then from there, I fell into an opportunity to work for the Hewlett Foundation on climate and clean energy finance to set up a portfolio that was dedicated to mobilizing capital for climate solutions across these regions where I had lived. So China, uh, the European Union, mostly the Eurozone, and then the United States. And so as of uh, September of 2021, I've transferred that portfolio over uh, to the Climate Finance Fund and covering the same strategy, covering the same markets, and focusing on venture capital, asset management, and bank lending and credit, all with the goal of mobilizing the three trillion a year or so US dollars that we need to solve climate change.
0: You mentioned the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, which is an interested in private foundation that has close to $10 billion in its endowment. Before we delve into its climate finance strategy, which you wrote, for 2018 to 2023. Could you please give us an overview of the foundation and its climate initiatives and strategy?
1: The William and Flora Hewlett Foundation has a climate portfolio focused on a number of interventions to solve climate change. So there's transportation, there's regional focus on India, China, for example. Um, There's focus on a lot of clean energy policy. Um, And then there are other specific areas like methane, like cooling that the Hewlett Foundation has supported. If you look at the 80 plus project drawdown solutions for how we actually solve climate change, um, there are a number of these solutions that the Hewlett Foundation has focused on over the years. And one of these things is the climate finance area And uh, that's what I'm still implementing now through the Climate Finance Fund, which is an independent platform uh, set up to cover these these three regions and these three pools of capital. Uh, But the climate finance strategy remains the same in that the goal is to mobilize this capital, focusing on capital allocators throughout the supply chain of capital. So you and I and our listeners or your listeners as consumers, households, individuals, small and medium-sized enterprises, large non-financial corporations that have, for example, their own balance sheets. They have their employee retirement benefits, sometimes through pension funds, sometimes through kind of employee matching schemes. And um, they also have their own bank accounts and bank deposits that are not neutral. And finally, the financial institutions themselves, so the banks and asset managers themselves, who are either investing for their own sake or managing investments on behalf of their clients. And all of these actors are important throughout the ecosystem. And so we need each of these capital allocators to shift away from the dirty towards the clean. And then, of course, we have the regulators of the system. So the market itself is regulated and we need those market rules to work for decarbonization and decarbonizing the air and recarbonizing the soil. So all of that is in scope. I would say we're about 20% focused on the market rules, 80% on the market itself. And there are two pillars of the work. One is innovative finance, and that is anything we could do to prove to the market that something that the market perceives as not investable actually is. And then the second pillar is systemic change. So systemically moving the financial sector away from carbon emitting activities towards carbon mitigating activities.
0: Now let's dive straight into the report. One of the main issues that you mentioned in the report is regarding passive investing and passive asset management. Why are you so focused on that? And what do you think are its broader implications on climate finance?
1: Right. So... Passive investing is on the rise. It is now the most popular kind of trading. So over half of all trades in the United States are through passive funds. That is a trend. Over a third of trading in the European Union is passively done and over 10% in China, although in all three of those economies, it's on the rise. So It seems as though passive investing is here to stay. Of course, algorithms and robots um, taking over and applying intelligence to buying and selling stocks. And we've seen this penetrate the bond market uh, more as well. And so the issue here is that what this is doing is kind of moving decisions and any kind of filtering according to ESG or Let's just say climate risk and opportunities putting all of this uh, into a right now, the default is carbon intensity. If the autopilot system was geared towards decarbonization and fully incorporating climate risk opportunity and impact, then we would actually see the the true price of carbon and greenhouse gas emissions be incorporated into that. Right now that's not the case. So, right now it's almost as if the economy is on autopilot for highly carbon intensive industries and activities because the the benchmarks and the indices that are being used are not decarbonized right so instead of using the MSCI uh, low carbon index right now it's the MSCI world index which is still carbon intensive it's also moving decision making power away from Those that actually own the asset, right, the asset owners, whether it's retail or institutional, towards those that are managing um, the assets. And there's some misaligned incentives because oftentimes the clients of the asset managers are also companies that could stand to lose from a full incorporation of climate risks and opportunities um, and other ESG factors. And so um, with that misaligned incentives, that's also a problem because the the money is being invested for the benefit of the asset owner, but that asset owner no longer has the voice. And of course, this depends on the economy and the the rules around proxy voting and things of that nature. But these are some of the ways that passive um, asset management are working against decarbonization and against truly incorporating all of the ESG and climate risk and opportunities and impacts.
0: If we move on to the asset class section of your report, one of the asset classes that very few people speak about, but but you've spent an intensive amount of time exploring this asset class regarding credit union and retail banking. And I'm quite impressed with the argument that you make that there should be more focus on these particular asset classes. Can you please delve more into this and also give us a brief overview of your involvement in the global expansion of PCAF, the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials? Thank you.
1: Right. So if you just follow the money, right, literally, if you start with a blank page and follow the money, you will find that there is tremendous capital in retail bank accounts, right? A lot of retail banks are also commercial banks, but not always. And I like to focus on the retail banking side because it is often the pillar or foundation of the banking system. So if we go back to 2008, 2009 with the uh, financial crisis Let's remember that it was often the retail bank that bought the investment bank, right? Not the other way around. The investment banks were crumbling, and it was the retail banks that came to the rescue, along, of course, with taxpayer money and government support. And so it's the people, ultimately, that end up carrying the weight, the people and small and medium-sized enterprises. I include banking of small companies in, in the retail banking definition. And so we know across all the major economies that small and medium-sized enterprises are the backbone of economies, uh, drivers of employment, just very key. Yet, when we look at a lot of climate finance, let's say efforts, a lot of where philanthropic capital, not just financial, but also time and other resources have, has been spent, it has tended to focus outside of the intersection between people, small business and money. It's tended to focus more on large-scale commercial capital that, quite frankly, ignores people. And when you follow the capital, you actually see, oh my goodness, a hundred-plus trillion in bank deposits for 3.7 billion customers globally. You find over thirteen trillion in the us over fourteen trillion in the EU almost thirty trillion in China It's just phenomenal and so to ignore that would be I think a bit criminal um, because it is it's such a, a huge pool of capital but also it is an avenue to really leverage what is clearly a consumer demand for uh, climate action into mobilizing this capital for climate action um, and that's across all the you know the world economies especially driven by younger generations including the millennial generation and Gen Z, but not only you have overwhelming majorities of people saying, yes, we actually need to get climate change under control we need to decarbonize we need to take action because this is an issue that makes everything else worse, right? It exacerbates all other risks. It's pervasive. It's impacting rural, urban alike. It's impacting every corner <laughs> of, of the earth in, in these different ways. And so it really is kind of a, the great equalizer in many ways in that um, we have to get it under control for the globe. So the money is there. So if we even, let's say we just mobilize 1%, right? Of that, we are well On our way to achieving the goals needed in terms of capital, I I like to focus there, and I think it's important that others focus as well. And I must say, I have seen since, you know, over the past four years, since we've been working at this, a tremendous amount of growth in not just leveraging retail banking deposits, but also retail investing and this intersection between climate finance. And financial technology is also increasing to scale some of that. And I think right now we we need to see public policy work for that, especially those banks, including cooperative banks known as credit unions in the U.S., really receive the public support they need to scale their interventions. Because it's those community focused institutions that are close to uh, climate risks and opportunities where the the real economy is being impacted and so they're the the best suited to provide solutions uh, loans lines of credit to both residents and businesses that are on the front lines of, of a climate crisis and so i i think the public policy has to catch up with i think where the market is clearly clearly already is and is headed so that's that's a bit on the retail banking side Um, In terms of PCAF, so the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials, that was started in the Netherlands, so where I think you're currently based, um, Jonas. And the Dutch pension funds and banks and regulators came together and they kind of said, okay, we need a harmonized approach by which to measure, disclose, and reduce the carbon emissions that are most important to what we do, which is not our bank branch—it's actually our loans and investments—and so that's what they did. They came together and they created a harmonized methodology to measure um, uh, the greenhouse gas emissions associated with loans and investments. And they drew on the greenhouse gas protocol, uh, which is you know section or category fifteen on on investments, and they they built that out further according to financial asset classes, and then we had funded the global expansion of that, first bringing it to the United States and then expanding it globally, including throughout Europe, um, Africa, Latin America, the Caribbean, Asia, everywhere. Um, and it's still growing. It is now uh, over 60 trillion of assets under management are using the PCAF methodology. And you have both small Community focused banks to large $10 trillion asset managers um, that are using PCAF. So it's um, very inclusive and uh, has had tremendous growth. And we have seen it also be used to um, influence policy because ultimately we do need to have this mandated, right? If we want the whole system to change, um, there will always be laggards. And so we need to have all financial institutions measure, disclose, and reduce their financed emissions. And so we've seen that influence in, po- in various policies. The most recent being uh, the European Banking Authority (EBA), which has, you know, called upon PCAF in its requirement for all banks in Europe to uh, measure and disclose their financed emissions.
0: Speaking of credit unions, one of the most interesting examples that you've written about is regarding the Clean Energy Federal Credit Union. Can you please explain what makes this model so unique to financing sustainable solutions at a consumer level?
1: Yes. So the Clean Energy Federal Credit Union is a credit union in the United States. So for those who are listening outside of the U.S., the U.S. has over 5,000 credit unions and over 5,000 banks. And credit unions are essentially cooperative banks. And so this cooperative bank called the Clean Energy Credit Union is completely online. Most of the staff are based in Colorado, but it's completely online. And anyone in any of the 50 states, plus the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, et cetera, can bank with this credit union and they're completely focused on clean energy lending. And so whether you would like a ground source heat pump, air source heat pump, electric vehicle, rooftop solar, All of these products are what they specialize in. And so they have affordable rates for all of these these clean energy and climate-friendly loans. And they're not only doing this lending themselves, but they're also showing the other 5,000 credit unions how to do this. So they are selling loan participations into uh, other credit unions. So other credit unions may want to just try out, let's say, this new asset class for them called Clean Energy Asset Class. And um, one way of doing that is just to buy loan participations from Clean Energy Credit Union, see how they perform, and then try originating those loans themselves. So that's one pathway. There's also a training available uh, right now, for solar, uh, commercial, and residential solar, but that will be expanded soon. From inclusive, so inclusive without the e on the n, they're they're doing this training, and those um, that have gone through the training, so loan officers and any any lending institution really can do this training in the United States. They they have found that the clean energy credit union presence is just so important because they really are experts at originating these loans, and so it's a great example of how new innovative institutions are very important, um, not just in and of themselves, but also to pave the path for the existing lenders, the existing depository institutions, banks and credit unions to then um, copy and take in and integrate this kind of, of lending and, and democratize it really. So they're they're a great example of this.
0: Now let's move on to venture capital. This is an asset class that You've written about in your strategy report, but you also have first-hand experience since you are a BC partner. Could you please delve into the role of venture capital in accelerating climate solutions?
1: Sure. So venture capital, and I think what surrounds it, so the accelerators, the angel investing, the seed capital, even, I guess, a a bit further or upstream from that, the, the research and development All of that is so critical for decarbonization because we have hard to mitigate sectors, right? So we have chemical, steel, cement. Um, We need to have storage that lasts for more than four hours and at affordable um, rates and costs. So we do need technological innovation to scale, in order to fully decarbonize and reach net zero at the very latest by 2050. So that's where this venture capital and adjacent types of capital come in and and is critical. And so, you know, it's the pool of capital that is in short supply, right? So compared to bank capital or asset management in terms of the capital markets, or um, public finance, public budgets, anything else you could think of in terms of pools of capital, venture capital is is the smallest. And that's because, of course, it takes on the more risks. It is kind of almost risk-seeking as opposed to risk-averse like banking and lending. And yet it is so critical for climate because we do need to take these risks and make bets on innovation in order to fully decarbonize. So that, that's why it's so important.
0: Now let's move on to the regional targeted strategies section of your report. If we can focus on the West for now, specifically the European Union and the United States. I know you're very familiar with the European landscape when it comes to climate finance policies, since you've lived there and you travel frequently to the EU but you're also quite vocal when it comes to climate finance related policies in the United States. For example, you recently testified to the U.S. Senate Committee on Finance, Housing, and Urban Affairs, and you've responded to calls for public input on climate change disclosures, both at a state level with the state of California and at a federal level with the Securities and Exchange Commission. So I look forward to your perspective on this.
1: The European side is quite complex because you really have 27 different countries. You have so many different languages, different approaches, and therefore it is very heterogeneous and complex. Um, Especially, you know, our focus is on private finance uh, as opposed to taxpayer or public budgets. So I would say in, in general, there's there's public spending uh, and we've seen, for example, around high-speed rail networks and things like that, uh, there have been serious investments compared to some of the other economies, mostly compared to the United States. For certain uh, climate solutions and and climate-friendly infrastructure. There are significant gaps when it comes to retail banking and retail investing um, and public support for that, for example. I would say there's been this more consolidation. It depends on the, once again, the the country. Um, It's hard to to speak in generalities uh, around the the European sense. So, for example, in France, there's been a lot of consolidation uh, in the banking industry. So very few banking players and the, the sustainable, more ethical banks have had a lot less government subsidy and support to really scale and become also national champions. Where, whereas, you know, in other economies, it might, it might be a different situation. So I think the European region is more heavily, let's say, capitalized through bank lending lines of credit than the capital markets, kind of compared to the United States, for example. So it, it's just the bank, banks are just very important. Let's put it that way. Um, not to ignore the asset owners and managers, but it, it really is um, t- to ignore the bank's is to ignore the the foundation of the, the available capital to deploy for climate solutions at all levels. And so, but I, I for some reason, I do think we have um, collectively as a kind of climate philanthropic community, focused less on the banks in Europe, which I think is a is a mistake. So the situation, I mean, I mentioned, we met, talked about PCAF earlier, which originated in Europe, but we had to really bring it global before it can come back to Europe. And uh, expand here. We've seen an uptake at almost all of the larger uh, European economies except for France. And, and so it really is a hodgepodge. While I mentioned EBA earlier, the European Banking Authority, um, so we've seen leadership there uh, in terms of EBA mandate, mandating scopes one, two, and three emissions and finance emissions disclosure, on one hand being very positive. On the other hand, of course, the European quote unquote green taxonomy Uh, not being uh, green and incorporating fossil fuels, incorporating gas into the definition of green, which is uh, obviously nonsensical, as opposed to being, you know, the green taxonomy could have been a very neutral exercise. It's now a very harmful exercise with the inclusion of gas. And so it it really is a hodgepodge mixed uh, bag uh, coming from the, the European climate finance scene. On the U.S. side, um, we have seen a lot of momentum behind climate finance regulation in the past 12 months or so, and we're awaiting uh, mandatory disclosure rules from the Security and Exchange Commission, the SEC. We have seen a new Department of Labor bulletin around uh, ERISA plants, ERISA being private uh, retirement funds so your 401k 403b world in, in the United States and um, the new rule in, including the need to incorporate ESG incorporate including climate considerations into being what the, def, the definition of being a good fiduciary for those plans that's been a progress. we've also seen the CFPB in the US so the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau enable account switching. Uh, which, of course, is um, you know goes beyond climate or any other particular consideration, and is just um, helpful practice for empowering uh, consumers and individuals uh, to have control of their their banking destiny. Th- that has uh, been a positive movement. Um, we haven't seen uh, much come yet from the other regulators, but there's been uh, overall from Treasury the sign that. The f- various financial regulators must incorporate climate risk opportunity and impact in their various mandates. Um, and so we were looking forward to, to watching that space and, and to having these considerations fully incorporated into the market rules. And the on the private market side, I mean, the I think the market has spoken from large institution to small that climate and ESG are critical and you we've seen just such a big uptake, especially post-COVID in sustainable investing, lending, lines of credit. However, there is still a long way to go, including, as I mentioned earlier, supporting having the, the public policy and public budget support community focused lenders. And the existing depository institutions, so the existing community-focused banks and credit unions, we have yet to see that happen in the United States. There has been movement, again, in climate fintech. So we're we're seeing increasing companies, startups, innovations that are bringing the best of technology to the best of actually mobilizing capital for the real economy for, for climate solutions across agriculture, clean energy, um, energy efficiency in buildings, so on and so forth, transportation. Where the U.S. has has failed in terms of real economy investing for climate, of course, is on the rail infrastructure side and including high-speed rail and public transit altogether um, in a way that would really bring more than just greenhouse gas reduction benefits, but also huge economic and social benefits if that were really built out the same way that China and the European Union has built out their infrastructure around rail, um, including high speed rail.
0: Thank you for the elaborate response, Marilyn. Now let's move on to East Asia, specifically China, a country which you're very familiar with, especially since you have a high proficiency level of Mandarin. You've lived and worked there. You've even taught at one of the well known universities in Beijing, and you're the host of a China Clean Tech podcast. I've listened to most of the episodes on your podcast, and there was some interesting coverage on some innovative climate finance models, especially regarding central banking and credit unions. I would appreciate it if you could give us an overview of the current ongoings in the Chinese climate finance landscape. Thank you.
1: You know, there really isn't another place like China. That could be said for there isn't another place quite like the U.S or quite like this you know, European Union system. And really China is, is the same in that they're, it's really difficult to compare to anything else because it's a, in a very unique situation economically and uh, across other kind of metrics. So China is both the largest uh, greenhouse gas emitter on an annual basis. Of course, the, the largest emitter collectively in terms of the, the tons of CO2E that we're dealing with now is the United States. And on an annual basis, um, the largest emitter right now is China, and it's also the largest market for renewable energy and electric vehicles and electrification uh, of transportation in general. And so um, it's kind of a yes and, it's it's both. Um, And so it's very unique that way. Of course, I've I've lived in China, as I mentioned earlier, and it is very diverse uh, geographically, in terms of, you know, where a lot of the demand for goods and services is concentrated, including electricity, and where um, a lot of it is produced. So there's, you know, the things that are particular to uh, the Chinese geography um, as well. And so you have, for example, um, more concentration of nuclear power in the southern parts of China. Uh, you have um, wind and solar, you know, very large infrastructure more in the West, and that you have this this high concentration of use on the eastern uh, seaboard uh, of China, uh, both north and south. So anyway, there's all of these very unique things in, in the Chinese context. We have seen, uh, just to stay on this theme of kind of financial regulation and climate, we have seen actually the PBOC, the People's Bank of China, so Chi- the Chinese Central Bank, create a policy last year, which is very helpful um, in that the banks can have 60% of their loan covered at a 1.75% interest rate, as opposed to the market, the general rate, 4%, that's the prime rate in the Chinese uh, system right now. So a huge discount if the lending is green. So if it's for uh, climate-friendly or other green purposes, and they can have that kind of coverage, that is the most ambitious we've ever seen any central bank in the world move towards decarbonization. And it's, it's quite impressive. And so it's, um, it's a pilot in some ways in that uh, I believe there's like a two year trial or mandate around this and it could be extended, but it is very significant in that we see the central bank really, you know, not just calling for a, a certain kind of closure, but actually taking in that understanding of climate risk and opportunity and layering on policy that helps their banks. Mobilize more capital in a very concrete way uh, for uh, climate-friendly economic activities, loans and lines of credit. So, so that is um, an example. We are also expecting more um, measurement and disclosure regulations to come. I'd say that the market is also speaking in different ways in China around the demand for climate-friendly. Um, not just infrastructure, but other um, interventions, including climate fintech, right? we We've seen um, an emergence of of more also venture capital in China on this theme. I think we're now, you know with the various macro economic themes, and kind of China is entering a new age of shared prosperity, which I think is very exciting. I think we are we're starting to see more in a of, how and where this capital for climate-friendly activities is is mobilized. I think you heard the episode um, that we had with um, Dr. Xu Hu, um, where we talked about the community banks in, in China, which I highly encourage listeners to tap into at the China Clean Tech podcast. But there's so much that uh, that has been untapped for climate-friendly lending and investment in China that I think is now very ripe to to support given this new framework of um, shared prosperity in in the kind of the macro framework um, of the economy in China right now. I think um, what's exciting is also just the ability to scale things very quickly in China through pilots. Um, So you can have a pilot in a particular province and if that goes well, that can, can influence the national level and you have the scale right there domestically in China to try out new things and to to then um, have a huge impact uh, later on. So I would also kind of watch out for trends in some of these real economy sectors and hard to abate sectors like chemical, steel, cement, like you know reducing methane emissions. I think. Um, reducing those emissions and having the capital to do so is something that China is also uniquely positioned to do. And I'm hoping to see more of that intersection in the years to come.
0: We're now reaching uh, near the end of this episode. And the last question is regarding uh, diversity. You've been a strong advocate for various uh, diversity initiatives, and you've written several articles about how different forms of innovations need to take place to address these systemic issues. In one of your articles about uh, diversity regarding investment management, it was surveyed that about 4% of BC partners are female, out of which less than 5% are from the Black community and about 3% from the Latinx community. These statistics are quite depressing. Could you please delve into one of your initiatives and how it is working to resolve these issues.
1: Right. So the the data is pretty disheartening around kind of representing all people, including underrepresented um, minorities. And that's across the board, uh, across geographies. And the work we've done so far um, includes, for example, supporting a group called VC Include, which uh, does not focus only on venture capital, despite its name, it focuses on asset management in general. And they're doing a lot of things, but in particular with climate, they are supporting uh, fund managers. So whether it be a VC fund or a public equities fund that has a thesis on climate mitigation, they're supporting diverse management for those funds. So underrepresented people, um, women, people of color, um, in the United States and in Europe to start with. And that could be expanded to other geographies as well. But they are supporting that in order to really drive more climate impact and to really test out the thesis of, you know, by having more diverse representation, do we have better climate impact uh, outcomes? And that's in terms of their these funds are going to measure their greenhouse gas emissions they're going to measure their workforce um, impacts in terms of employment, in terms of where, you know, geographically um, it's happening in terms of, you know, whether it's low income communities or climate impacted communities. Um, so they're going to track all of this um, to see any, any correlation or a nexus between um, this, this representation of, of who is managing the money um, and the lens they bring to that and where the money is being invested right? Um, and is it reaching all the places we need to reach to actually solve this? So that's an example of something that we're supporting, all the firms we support in improving their diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we believe that you know the business case is very clear, that that drives better outcomes across all metrics. And where I've seen the gap uh, is on the European side, more so than anything, especially when it comes to underrepresented uh, racial and ethnic minorities and communities that have been racialized. And that's including the Roma. It includes Afropeans. Um, it includes um Europeans who are living in the Caribbean, right? So citizens of France and the Netherlands who are sort of Aruba and Martinique and Guadeloupe and what have you. And you cannot get more climate impacted than that. And yet, and yet very little inclusion of those voices in climate innovation, climate tech, and investment management for climate solutions. And and that's problematic. So I would say um, there's tons of work to do. I think we're barely scratching the surface. And I just, it's impossible to really achieve this goal without all hands on deck because climate is definitely one of these things that is so systemic and pervasive that we need to bring all people (laughs) together to to solve this.
0: I 100% agree with all the points that you just mentioned. I hope that these issues will be solved once and for all, as soon as possible. Thank you so much for this great interview. I'm sure that the listeners will learn a lot of valuable lessons from your experience. Keep up the inspiring work, Marilyn.
1: Hey Jonas, thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Climate Finance Podcast. For future episodes, please join our mailing list on www.climatefinance.xyz. I repeat, www.climatefinance.xyz. See you at the next episode.